Support for Tantrum comes from MailChimp, celebrating creativity, chaos, and teamwork since 2001. MailChimp, send better email. The podcast you are about to hear is about raising kids, but it's for adults. There are curse words and talk of grown-up things, so make with the headphones. Welcome to Tantrum. Tantrum is a podcast for grown-ups about raising kids. I'm Kate. And I'm Allison. Today we'll hear from Sonia Kamal, who read at our May show at Kavarna. I couldn't stop sharing the story of my miscarriage with everyone. It was as if I was confessing, and my confession had opened gates to a taboo subject. Family, friends, neighbors, strangers, everyone came out. Sonia's story is about something really difficult that many, many people go through during their pregnancies, but which is rarely talked about. So, I mean, heads up, if hearing about miscarriage is just too tough for you, believe me, we completely understand. And we'll let you know when in this episode the essay is about to air. And at that point, you can skip to another episode. I will say, too, that Sonia's essay is also deeply moving And for me, at least, as someone who has experienced miscarriage, it actually meant something for me to hear Sonia's story. It seems like there are many aspects of parenting that people don't talk about it. And it's usually the really, really sad, really hard stuff. And and I think when awful things happen to children or to women who are pregnant, people just don't know how to respond or the response is inevitably going to be like too weak for the um how enormous the occasion is and so people end up not talking about it and keeping it to themselves and it just kind of spirals into this weird like isolating experience yeah yeah I think it's something that we just don't tend to talk about because it's not really it's not and and, and maybe in part because of that it's 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 not part of the sort of the expected narrative of sort of like you know what's supposed to happen and that's sort of cause and effect like if that makes sense um you know we're not we don't expect to miscarry and we don't expect to lose a baby or a child and so when it does happen you know people as a result people don't know what to say With miscarriage, I think, too, often you're not even sharing the good news yet, right? Like, you miscarry in those early months, and so you haven't, you're not sharing any of the news. Yeah, it's this weird sort of, I remember when it happened to me, and it happened to me in the the first trimester, and I wasn't sure. Sort of this question of how much to communicate to whom, like, how much do I tell people at work? And and I told my friends, and I told my family, but it was sort of this strange thing yeah I was talking to a friend who miscarried recently about um how much of what you're grieving is all of the the fantasies that your mind immediately is like you know that'll work well for work because I will just take off the second semester or whatever it is that even when you know you're not telling the world yet and it's not a sure thing you can't help it you can't help but your brain's gonna start imagining what that life looks like and it's going to obsess over it and how you're going to organize your house and all of these things. And so it's just like the, and you're feeling physical sensations as well. Like you're feeling it. Yeah. And then, I mean, you know, right. To to feel, go, go from feeling pregnant to, you know, obviously not being pregnant too. And I think, yeah. And I think that 
it's it's fine and right to honor that those those feelings you know sadness grief or you know whatever they may be Mm -hmm. um however you feel like doing so Mm -hmm. because there's a sense that maybe you shouldn't because maybe it's not really a big deal that i you know or or maybe even not even always that but just sort of this invisibleness and then i appreciate when people like sonia really go ahead and explain that and are fearless and shameless about like how intensely sad she felt about it and that it wasn't you know somehow finish my sentence for me Kate (laughs) that it was real yeah yeah and that it required a process of grieving and even though most of the stories that we hear on tantrum tend toward the humorous and and I love that um a lot of the time I love this story for Tantrum because I know we haven't heard it yet, y'all, but we'll get to it. I'm not giving anything away here, but I like that we're able to share this story because one reason that I really, really wanted to do Tantrum in the first place was to talk about aspects of motherhood and parenting that we don't often talk about. You know, Mm -hmm. that's why we make all the jokes or made all the jokes sort of early on about poop in the bathtub. (laughs) Which is, yeah. can, you can look at it as sort of like hilarious. It's awful in the moment. But they're really just god-awful shitty things, too, that, yeah, you know, and, and I don't want to be afraid. I don't want to shy away from talking about those things. It's wonderful to have brave women who are also great writers that will share their work with us. Yeah, right on. So moving right along, I think we have a couple of parental moments of glory These are moments of parenting that um, are hilarious, brilliant, moments of failure, moments of discovery. We have people turn them in both at the live shows and call in to our hotline. (laughs) So here are a couple from a recent show. Hi, my name is Katie, and this is my parental moment of glory. The other night while sitting on my toddler's floor... He needed to get by, and he actually said, excuse me, Mama. I was so impressed because that's not actually even some form of manners that I use. (laughs) All right. So, like, maybe daycare taught that one. Or maybe she's doing better than she thinks. Maybe she does say it, and, right, she just doesn't realize it. I don't know. And then, like, there's, there's, like, the sort of line between what you want them to do and then what you really do. Like, because my, my, oh, yeah. I gave my son a couple crackers and he goes like marching out of the kitchen into the, the living room the other day. And I said, oh, we don't eat crackers on the couch. We don't eat, f- we eat food in the living room or no, we eat food in the kitchen. <laughs> and John looked at me over his head and he was like, I wonder how long that illusion is going to stick. <laughs> yeah. I'm so okay. bad about that, that I've gotten to the point where my new thing is you can eat this anywhere you want, but you have to stay in one place. Uh-huh. Just... So let so it be contained. Like, I don't care if it's like on my bed, but just don't move all around the house while right. eating the granola bar. And remember, you can get in on this too. Share your parental moment of glory by leaving us a message at that hotline, Allison. 678 379 3748. I was really hoping you'd say hotline again. Well, that's the number for the hotline. <laughs> And now we are going to move on to our featured reader who read at our May show. And this is the story that we talked about earlier from Sonia Kamal. 
Sonia Kamal is a Pushcart Prize-nominated essayist and fiction writer. Her debut novel, An Isolated Incident, was a finalist for the Townsend Award for Fiction, the KLF French Fiction Prize, and is an Amazon Rising Star pick. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, TEDx, The Guardian, Chicago Quarterly Review, BuzzFeed, Catapult, The Missing Slate, The Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Huffington Post, and The Rumpus, among other places. Sonia was born in Pakistan and grew up in England and Saudi Arabia. She has lived in New Mexico, Maryland, Virginia, Colorado, Illinois, New Jersey, California, and currently Georgia. So I I, I polled the readers before the show and asked them if they had stories about cars and trucks and things that go that have to do with their kids. And Sonia tells us that before she and her husband had any kids, whenever they would go on trips, she would turn around to the empty back seat and pretend to talk to the children she hoped they would have one day. She imagined that they would sing songs and play car games and everyone would want to listen to NPR. And then one day, there they were, all three of them, fighting over radio stations and making potato chip messes. It was just so much easier to discipline them before when they were little invisible robots in her imagination. Please welcome Sonia Kamal. All right, well, happy Mother's Day, everyone. Thank you for that lovely introduction, Kate and Allison. Um, Okay, thanks for coming out. The first time I miscarried, I was a 24-year-old newlywed, and because of a mix-up in scheduling a DNC, I'd had to keep the dead baby inside of me for two days. While I mourned the loss, I found it scary to literally be carrying death. After the DNC, I was sad, but mostly relieved. Since then, I'd had several very early-onset miscarriages between two live births, but nothing so traumatic. Now I was pregnant again. After an uneventful first trimester, my husband and I announced the impending birth of our third child. Our seven-year-old son wanted a brother, and our five-year-old daughter wanted a sister. They named their new sibling Little Mo. I have no idea why. They purchased infant socks from Gap, zero to three months crimson, with white rubber soles, and placed them on the mantle like Christmas stockings. Little Mo's first 3D ultrasound photo, a dimpled knot was pinned to the fridge with a pastel magnet that spelled B-A-B-Y. A few days later, I dropped my kids at their elementary school and headed to the gym. My husband's job had recently moved us to Georgia, And in the absence of family or friends, exercise classes were my lifeline. After class, I headed back home only to discover that I was bleeding. I arrived at the OBGYNs and readied myself for the inevitable devastation of no heartbeat. Instead, we heard the shush, shush, shush of a beating heart and the beaming OBGYN proclaiming, the baby is fine. Still, in the following weeks, heavier spells of bleeding would see me at the doctor's or in the ER. Each time, I was assured that half of all women bleed throughout their pregnancies. It was normal, and the baby was going to make it. Every day, I would Google heavy bleeding, pregnancy, healthy baby, and draw solace from first-person testimonials saying as much. 
I even picked out names, Sahara for a girl and Khyber for a boy. One Thursday evening, during a visit to the ER, a compassionate nurse, sorry I was having such a miserable pregnancy, whispered that I was going to have a boy. The ER doctor added that he was moving so fast, he was going to come out playing soccer. Friday, the very next morning, I frantically headed to the OBGYN. In the midst of running an ultrasound wand over my tummy, she became silent. I knew already. My baby, Khyber, was gone. The OBGYN told me that since the pregnancy was close to 16 weeks, only specially qualified doctors could perform a late-stage DNC. Since both the qualified doctors happened to be Jewish, and because I'd miscarried on the Jewish New Year, they wouldn't be available until Tuesday. After reassuring me that my pregnancy hormones were too high for anything to happen over the weekend, I was sent home. The last time I'd had a dead baby inside of me, I'd felt gross and icky. This time, I treasured a final weekend to hold in my baby. Friday and Saturday were a teary blur. I was unsure of how to tell my kids that little Mo was gone. These last many weeks of a viable heartbeat had had me convinced that he was going to beat the odds. Now I didn't have the heart to take the ultrasound photos off the fridge. I kissed the zero to three month crimson socks and thought of Hemingway's one line story for sale, baby shoes, never worn. On Sunday evening, at exactly 7.02 p.m., I started to cramp. Minutes later, I realized I was in first stage labor. I wish the OBGYN had mentioned such a possibility. I wish she'd warned me that if I sat on the toilet seat catching expelled blood clots and tissue paper, I might very well deliver my baby's face into my hands. His face was no bigger than a kitchen cabinet knob. It was opaque because cartilage is opaque. The outlines of his eyes, ears, nose, and mouth were clear. He looked like an alien out of the X-Files TV show. His outline resembled my older son. I can only describe the attendant wave coursing through me as aging. Forever I would be divided between before seeing his face and after seeing his face. Should I kiss his face? Finally, I held him to my heart before putting him in a Ziploc sandwich bag as the ER instructed so it could be sent for an autopsy. After the ER, a chaplain held my hand and prayed with me. I told him I was Muslim, but that prayers are prayers. I couldn't stop sharing the story of my miscarriage with everyone. It was as if I was confessing, and my confession had opened gates to a taboo subject. Family, friends, neighbors, strangers, everyone came out. Either they'd share their own miscarriage story or else someone else's. It turned out that even my mother had miscarried before me. And yet, no one, not even my husband, could quite understand why I was so gutted. After all, I was told over and over again, I already had two kids. I could have another one as if babies are, irre are replaceable. That I'd barely been 16 weeks. Too many said, it wasn't a stillbirth. You weren't full term. It was just a fetus. Stop being so sad. 
It left me upset, angry, and alone to have conditions put on grief and detachment. That afternoon, as my kids cleared out their Spider-Man and Dora the Explorer backpacks, I blurted out, Little Mo is gone. Gone, said my son. He died. My son's best friend's father had passed away, and so my son had an inkling of life after death. Darren's father was in heaven, and heaven was a good place. So little Mo's in heaven? My son's eyes filled up. Like Darren's father? Yes, I said. And as I looked into his scared eyes, I knew that whether heaven really existed or not, it certainly belonged to little children confronted with mortality. Over the next month, we began to recover, if recover is the correct sum of time plus healing. One by one, little Mo's pictures came off the fridge. My son put them in his album, which held pictures of his beloved dead guinea pigs. I took Khyber's crimson socks off the mantle and tucked them at the back of a drawer. Around the same time, I lost the contract for my debut novel, but never again would I equate a book with a baby. These creations were not of equal magnitude, a fact which would allow me to more easily weather publishing rejections. One day, I received a call from the hospital, almost a month after the miscarriage. What did I want to do with the remains? I had not realized there would be remains. Muslims bury their dead, and my husband called the local mosque. He was informed that there could be no burial. In Islam, it is believed a soul enters the body at around 120 days, 16 weeks. And since my miscarriage took place right around that time, with no proof that a soul had indeed entered, what was inside me could only safely be considered a soulless fetus. Fresh grief engulfed me. I called my support at the hospital's perinatal loss clinic. Please don't throw him in the trash. The kind woman told me that since she'd seen the remains, she could tell he'd been a beautiful baby. I managed to thank you. She said the hospital took the remains of such babies for collective cremation. As soon as she said collective and cremation, I recalled a trip to the Holocaust Memorial Museum in D.C. and a blown-up photo of a funeral pyre with limbs sticking out. I did not want my baby to be one of many. And yet the human mind is such that Within hours, I found comfort in the very idea of a collective. That way, I comforted myself. Khyber would, at least, never be alone. A few weeks later, my family followed the printed-out directions to the cemetery in Stone Mountain, Georgia. My son had bought as an offering a miniature teddy bear I'd given him for Valentine's, and my daughter arose from our garden. The cemetery was located at the corner of Ponce de Leon Avenue and James B. Rivers Drive. We drove in and took the road to our left and made a right into a small lane. The ashes were buried in a plot shaded by an oak tree. We parked beside the plot. In an email I'd gotten earlier, it said, you will find a small marble bench with a carved dove on it. This was donated and is the only memorial that is allowed to mark the presence of the babies who have died. Please feel free to rest on the bench while visiting the graveside. I sat on the stone bench with the carved dove. I recited a prayer for my baby. I recited a prayer for all the babies. Thank you.
That's Sonia Kamal. That essay called The Face of Miscarriage appeared in a slightly different form in The New York Times. And that's it for Tantrum. You'll hear from us in about two weeks with our next episode. Because this isn't easy. And despite it all, you are kicking ass. Until next time, I'm Allison Harney. And I'm Kate Sweeney. Thanks to Jeffrey Butzer for letting us use his song, Catherine, for our music. And thanks to Mike Johns for recording the live show at Kavarna. See ya. See ya.